1: For
0: J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P sacred text.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. deserves a super soft super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants there are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun expressive prints and they come in sizes extra small to 4 xl guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody and like i said already they have unmatched comfort their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater it's also breathable stretchy and oh so comfy making it ideal for all day wear MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T. That's MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T for 20% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, Comfort from the outside in.
0: Chapter 11. The Firebolt. Harry didn't have a very clear idea of how he had managed to get back into the Honeyduke cellar, through the tunnel, and into the castle once more. All he knew was that the return trip seemed to take no time at all, and that he hardly noticed what he was doing. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
3: And I'm Kasper Kyle,
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. When I was doing my first round of clinical pastoral education, I was still very much in a space where my atheism was incredibly important to me. And I was at a large hospital with people of all faiths in the hospital – And so I was sent to non-denominational patients, to Christian patients, to Jewish patients, to atheists. I was really sent to all sorts. The only patients who I really never saw were Catholic patients because we had a couple of priests on staff who would visit them. But I was sent to visit a woman and I looked at her chart and she was dying and she requested a chaplain and she was Christian. So I went to visit her and she was in a lot of pain and she couldn't talk very loudly and she was turned on one side. And so in order to speak to her, I got on my knees because she was so low. If I was sitting on a chair, I was above her awkwardly. And we chatted about how she was feeling, and we held hands the whole time we talked. And then I said, is there anything else I can do for you? And she said, yes, can you pray with me? And that was the first time that a patient had asked me to pray with them, I had sat with patients while they had prayed. I had sort of always wiggled my way out of it. But nobody had ever directly asked me, will you pray with me? And I asked her to lead me in the prayer. I was like, I'm not very good at praying, but can you tell me what you would like to pray for? And once I heard the way that she was praying, I added my own prayers that I hoped that she would be pain-free And that she would feel love in her life. And then she said, praise Jesus. And I said, amen. On my knees, I prayed to Jesus. And it was so simple. And if you would have told me later today you're going to have to pray with a devoutly Christian woman who is going to say praise Jesus, I would have been like, oh, that sounds awkward and awful. And it was just so easy. It became very clear to me in that moment that my responsibility was to do whatever it took for this woman to feel good. And she wanted me to pray. And so I did. The circumstance called for something very specific. And I knew that my duty was to fulfill that request. And I think that that is when duty is at its best when you have discerned what it is that you care for, and that then. You get asked to do something that lives to those values. And even though it's hard, because you've made the promise, you rise to it because it is your responsibility, because you have made a vow and therefore it is your duty to fulfill that vow. And I think in most other circumstances, as we see in this chapter with Hermione and her responsibility for the boy's safety and all sorts of other things, the often duty is much more complicated than that. But there are moments that duty is just a good pair of boots that you can step into in order to do a job well.
3: I love that illustration of duty. And I think it illustrates exactly what you say. You know, that feeling of this is not something I would choose to do. It's not something I do every day. But it's so clear what is expected of me here. And actually, it's not going to cost me a lot. You know, it's uncomfortable, yes, but I'm not having to compromise who I am to do this.
0: Just what a blessing the moments in which your duty is clear and aligns with your values.
3: Yes. Can we have more of those?
0: Yes, please. So before we talk too much more about our duties, let's do our 30-second recaps. Perfect. Okay, so you lead the way? Yeah. On your mark, get set go.
3: So all the students have gone home for the holidays and only Ron and Hermione are left in, with Harry in the Gryffindor common room and he's had the this sleepless this night because he's freaking out about Sirius and like, oh my god. Um, and then he wakes up at lunchtime and he goes downstairs and there's Christmas presents and there's a jumper from Mrs. Weasley and oh my god, what's this big package? Who's it from? <gasps> it's a firebolt. Woohoo! Um, and they're freaking out about it. It's so exciting. But but Hermione's like, wait, but who sent it to you? Why isn't there a note? And then they go to Hagrid's cottage to take Harry's mind of things and Hag- Hagrid's freaking out because Buckbeak is in danger and there's a commission who's going to take him out and then Hermione tells me go about the broomstick
0: i didn't know you were capable of speaking that fast
3: i feel like i aged actually significantly
0: <laughs> oh look your hair just fell out like
3: i have shortness of breath my blood pressure has got this is not good for me <laughs> all right you ready three two one go
0: Christmas Day, all sorts of presents, including the firebolt. Then Christmas dinner, they go down. Trelawney is like, someone is going to die. And McGonagall's like, shut up. And then um, they go down to Hagrid's hut because, or maybe, the I don't know. They go down to Hagrid's hut and Buckbeak is going to be killed. And that's so sad. And then Hermione is really upset that they don't know who gave the firebolt. Harry, the firebolt, she tells him McGonagall. And McGonagall's like, we're going to have to test this. And Ron is like, Hermione, you ruin everything. <laughs>
3: I'm glad you mentioned Trelawney, because the moment between Trelawney and McGonagall in this chapter is priceless. I know. They are, like, going at it, and it's—I just hadn't appreciated it until I read it again. (laughs) Vanessa, let's start with this theme of duty. Where does it strike you in the pages of this chapter?
0: So this chapter breaks my heart for the moment in which Hermione has a very clear duty, which is to love her friends— And takes it very seriously and so tells Professor McGonagall that Harry has gotten a firebolt from an anonymous source. Yeah, And the boys are furious that she has done this because McGonagall comes and says, Hermione Granger has told me that you got an anonymous firebolt. She's concerned that it's from Sirius Black. I think she's right. So I'm going to confiscate it and we're going to do some tests on it.
3: And it's not just like an afternoon of tests. Like, this is going to take weeks of anti-charms. They're going to take the whole thing apart, which to Harry's mind is just, like, obscene.
0: Yeah. And Ron immediately turns on Hermione and says, what did you go running to McGonagall for? I mean, Hermione just cannot possibly be surprised by this negative reaction. And it was just so clear to her, she says, because I thought, Professor McGonagall agrees with me, that the broom was probably sent to Harry by Sirius Black.
3: And you can find a parallel, you know, if it's trying to intervene in maybe a friend or a family member's addictive behavior or a relationship that you think is dangerous or In a worst-case scenario, like, literally calling the authorities to intervene in a loved one's life.
0: Which is what Hermione does. She calls in her authority.
3: Right, right. And it could really destroy the relationship she has. I mean, the books could have ended in a way where, like, this is the moment which is unforgivable to especially Ron, I think, in a way, even more than than Harry in some way, at least in the way that he reacts at the end of this chapter. But she has these competing duties, and ultimately, I think she sees them in alignment. She's like, my friendship and my duty to keep you safe mean that I have to do this thing that you're not going to like.
0: Right, and I feel like... There's a way to argue that this is just Hermione being Hermione in a goody-goody, but it's interesting that it's in this chapter that Ron says, Hermione, check if Snape is teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts again, because if he is, I'm ditching, and Hermione checks.
3: That's right, and we've seen her already in this book helping Neville right in the same Defense Against the Dark Arts class, and so— This isn't just you're breaking the rules, so I'm going to tell on you. This is coming from a much more deep place.
0: Yeah, it's not obedience. It's duty. Exactly.
3: That's really interesting. Okay, help me understand the difference between those two.
0: I feel like obedience is following the rules, whether or not you agree with the rules and whether or not you think the rules are moral. And duty at its best, I think you've at least agreed that you think that the rules are moral as you try to fulfill them
3: well as you say obedience is about just following instructions but duty has some sort of connection to the purpose or the motive of the whole infrastructure in the first place the organization or the cause and i feel like that means that duty sometimes will come into conflict with obedience
0: yeah sometimes they really overlap but other times i think that there are moments in which you'll really come up against each other
3: right I mean, one place where you can see a difference between obedience and duty is in the line of battle. You know, there's so many stories of a group of soldiers, you know, maybe in a skirmish or or in the heat of battle. And the orders from their superior is to retreat or is to leave a wounded person because they're risking themselves and other servicemen and women. And some of the most heroic stories that are out there is people who go into danger to rescue, you know, a comrade who's under attack, which makes no sense, right? Like, it's exposing themselves. It's exposing other people. It's disobeying orders for which they've been trained. And yet, when it works, they have, like, fulfilled this duty to their brothers and sisters in arms, which, I mean, you can't not be moved by that.
0: Yeah. And I really do think that previous Hermione cared so much about obedience that she didn't think about what she wanted her duties to be. But now she is acting in accordance with the duty that she has decided for herself. There's no order that says, if your friend gets a firebolt randomly, you have to tell the authority. Like There's no Christmas gift rule that she is following here. This is not rules rules. This is something else.
3: Exactly. Because you can only follow the letter of the law so far. Duty is about the spirit of the law. It's about the gray space between, and it has to engage your heart and your brain. There isn't instructions for everything.
0: But don't you feel as though there are times in which all sorts of sins are sort of covered under the auspice of duty.
3: Totally. Actually, I was thinking of that as we were reading this chapter because we start to see here a sort of intergenerational revenge story. It just reminded me of the Greek tragedies. Harry is learning about his parents. He's learning about Sirius and he feels like he wants to avenge his parents by killing Sirius. And it's interesting because Harry at this point is still quite young and someone says, well, you're not going to go out and kill Sirius, are you? And it says something like, Harry didn't know what he wanted to do. So there's this sense of, I want to do something bad. Like he has to pay for what he did, but he hasn't consciously made that step to say, I want to kill this person, which is a big step to take. And so I feel like he is being compelled by a sense of duty to mortally wound someone else. And, and I feel like here, duty is pushing Harry in a dangerous direction, right?
0: Right. It doesn't even feel like a responsibility or obedience or anything else. It's only a sense of duty, of like protecting the reputation or something ephemeral like that about someone you love.
3: Right. It feels like... Your love is at stake. Like, if you don't do this thing, it says that you didn't love the person, which that can't be right. I mean, I understand it, but, like.
0: No, and I often feel like it's a similar situation to one that we see ourselves in now, which is that Harry might feel the need to avenge his parents Deaths, but I don't feel as though his parents would be like, Yes, go, right? Like, I feel like it's often not what the victims would actually want done in their names, right? There's still this desire to avenge.
3: Right. And I think it's wrapped up in how it looks to other people. I mean, we touched on this in the last episode, that idea of that kind of fragile masculinity beginning to emerge for Harry. You know, what is Malfoy going to say? Is he going to look weak if he doesn't? Because that's what Malfoy taunts him earlier in the book. He says, you know, I'd want revenge if I was you. Right. He's already being pushed in that direction.
0: Baited. Yeah. He's being
3: baited. Yeah.
0: There's a moment that I'm having a hard time with, and it might just be that we don't have quite enough information. But... In this chapter, we find out that Hagrid got a letter from the school governors saying that he is not going to be in trouble for what happened with Buckbeak and Draco, but that Buckbeak is going to be put on trial for his crimes. And obviously, Hagrid being Hagrid is distraught over this. And Ron, Harry, and Hermione are like, don't worry, we'll mount a good defense for Buckbeak. And Hagrid says, you don't understand, it won't matter. The Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Animals is all in Malfoy's pocket. And I just, I mean, I'm guessing there's money involved here, but this is clearly like a subcommittee in the government. And I understand that level of corruption, but... I just, like, don't understand where their sense of duty is. Mostly I'm incredulous.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, it's absurd. Like, they are totally failing in their duty. They've been so easily swayed by Lucius, who at this point, yes, is rich. Yes, is powerful. But, like, he's not as powerful as the Minister of Magic at this point, right? Dumbledore certainly has more power over him.
0: Why isn't Malfoy disgraced? He was a follower of you-know-who.
3: Right. Well, this is the thing. I feel like... People are hiding behind a kind of institutional mask, right? There's zero courage. Like, even for Malfoy, why is he picking this fight? Like, is this a way to swipe at Dumbledore? I don't understand.
0: I feel like for Malfoy, it's racism, right? Like, he's so pure-bloody that he hates Hagrid for being half-giant. I feel it's just like, I'm in your home. And technically, this animal hurt his son.
3: (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's just another case in these books of an institution failing to maintain its duty and its selfishness and some combination of fear and, you know, money reward that is being given to sway these votes on this committee. But my gosh, we need better committee members in the wizarding world.
0: And I just don't understand how they're not ashamed. I mean, like, even Hagrid knows that this committee is completely corrupt.
3: Can't we take it to some sort of internal review or like even the press? Right. So there's another place where I want to go in the text, which is that the firebolt, of course, we know that it's from Sirius. And What? I <laughs> Hold your horses, people. And at this point, it's because he's a godfather, right? And we learn later that it's paying for a lot of previous presents, which never arrived because he was in prison. But there is something interesting here that, you know, Sirius can't really yet love Harry at least not in a relational way maybe as an idea but they haven't really spent time together and so there's no real relationship there so this present is being given out of duty and I would say there's nothing wrong with that at this moment but it made me think about what relationships do I have which are about duty more than they are about love and I'm looking at you Vanessa
0: (laughs) Oh, I absolutely think that. And I think it's a sense of duty to James also. James was this great Quidditch player, and so he wants Harry to remain one. And it shows Sirius' sense of duty that he knows what's going on with Harry. I mean, we know that he he was at the Quidditch game, so he saw for himself. Yeah, there's a real sense of responsibility for all of these different things. And certainly he loved James, which I feel like when one of your friends has a child, you love the child because they're a part of your friend. Right.
3: So there is a relational connection, but it's not direct. It's like indirect.
0: Right. But I agree with you that it's a sense of duty and a sense of like, I want to be able to, to do this now that I can.
3: It's also kind of duty to yourself in a way, because it's like, I want to be the kind of person that does this kind of thing. It's to the idealized idea of who you want to be.
1: Life is
0: full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's
1: why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by MeUndies. Deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of MeUndies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all-black classics to fun, expressive prints. And they come in sizes extra small to 4XL. Guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. Me Undies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at meundies.com slash That's meundies.com slash hpst for 20% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, comfort from the outside in.
0: Casper, just one more point before we move on that I have to make. So, McGonagall in this chapter publicly makes fun of Sybil Trelawney. I am going to make the argument that she would not be making fun of Trelawney if there weren't students in the room in front of whom McGonagall feels as though she has to debunk these theories of death and destruction. So Trelawney walks in and is like, oh, I can't possibly sit down. I'll be the 13th person at the table, and therefore the first person who stands up is going to die. And McGonagall is like, don't worry about it. I think we can risk it. And then when Ron and Harry stand up, Trelawney is like, wait, which of the first of you stood up? And McGonagall says, I doubt it will make much difference Unless a mad axe man is waiting outside the doors to slaughter the first into the entrance hall. And even Ron laughed, right? So I feel like Harry is constantly being threatened with life and death. And she feels a duty to be like, no, this woman is like torturing you with these fingers. I will cut her down to size for the sake of your education.
3: So I had the exact opposite because nearly all of the students are gone. I feel like McGonagall is finally releasing her like pent up anger. She's like, listen, there's like five students. They'll see this. I don't care. I cannot bear this woman one second longer. I'm going to cut her to shreds because they don't interact much, right? You know, this school doesn't have a staff meeting. Like the only time they interact is at, The dinner table.
0: Oh, yeah. They don't have, like, (laughs) annual professional development day.
3: There's no assessment. It's just, like, some house elves in a room somewhere (laughs) being like, I guess I'll give them an eight, you know. (laughs) So I feel like McGonagall is, like, she's, like, letting it rip.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I totally disagree because I feel like with Harry, Ron, and Hermione there, there are three Gryffindors who she's pretty close to, especially with Harry there. She even gets teary-eyed thinking about the fact that Lily and James have died earlier in this chapter. I feel like she's really holding that to her heart, and it's just like, no, Trelawney, you torture him 364 days a year, not on Christmas.
3: I mean, she has so many zingy one liners. <laughs> like, I just looked at the text again right now and saw another one. McGonagall, at one point, puts a large spoon in the nearest terrine and then says to Sybil, <laughs> tripe, Sybil, which of course also means like baloney, right? Like, she is just taking her for a ride. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that it's out of a sense of duty to Harry, and you think that it's because she's finally duty-free.
3: Exactly. It's like a holiday. She's like, finally, I can undo my top collar and just, like, shake my hair down.
0: Oh, my God. Do you think her hair is down?
3: Oh, yeah. She is, like—she's in sweatpants. Next up, we have a conversation with Father Jim Martin, who is a Catholic priest, and we wanted to invite Jim on the show because he could tell us a little bit more about the Ignatian spirituality practice that we've been engaging in over the last couple of seasons. And of course, you know, as a Catholic priest, Jim uses language, especially the language of God, that might be comfortable for some of you and not so comfortable for others. So as you listen, listen with an open heart and and see what resonates for you. And hopefully we'll all learn something new about this practice that we've grown to love. So this week, we're really thrilled to have Father Jim Martin join us. Um, he is in the studio in Carnegie Hall where Jim Dale first recorded the audiobooks of Harry Potter. So, uh, Jim, you've got some hallowed ground that you're standing on, or sitting on, I guess. <laughs> I do, uh, and uh, but don't expect all those voices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll leave that for another day. Um, Jim, you are the editor-at-large at America Magazine. Um, you know, you're know, you someone who comments a lot in the media and is really an advocate, I would say, for kind of Ignatian spiritual practice in, in public life, um, as well as being a priest yourself. Um, and so we're thrilled to have you on the show. And give us a little bit of uh, history about some of the practices that we've been doing here. So th- the first question I have for you is, is just tell us a story. How did you end up being a Catholic priest and a Jesuit?
4: Yeah, it's kind of a roundabout story. Uh, I'll try to make it a little less long than the Harry Potter <laughs> books. Yeah, Basically, I grew up in a fairly non-religious family. We were Catholic, but not super Catholic. I went to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, where I studied finance. We used to say finance, not finance, and got a good job with uh, GE, General Electric, in New York City, um, you know, and it was, it was very exciting. It was uh, the early '80s, and I did everything that a young man with a lot of money in the early '80s would do. You oh know, boy, all those bl- <laughs> Yeah, filling all those blanks. And you know, I, I enjoyed it, but I ended up uh, taking a job with GE Capital, their financial services arm, in Connecticut, and just found that uh, that really wasn't my vocation. And you know, while business is a great vocation for a lot of people, I just felt like a square peg in a round hole. Didn't know what to do, didn't know, you know, how to kind of escape, until one night I came home and turned on the TV and saw a documentary about Thomas Merton, Mm. the Trappist monk, I'm sure you guys know. right? And uh, something about the documentary and the look on his face and the idea of monastic life really called to me. And I started reading his book, The Seven-Story Mountain, his autobiography, and that led me to lots of his other books. And to really start to think, you know, wow, this sounds like a really... Sort of appealing, romantic, beautiful way to live, although I didn't know anything about, you know, anything about the <laughs> It looks good on disorders. the outside,
3: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I
4: you know, I never set foot in a monastery for, for that matter. And um, I ended up going to my parish priest and saying, I think I want to be a priest. And he said, well, you know, contact the local diocese. I said, sure. And he said, almost as an afterthought, you might want to contact the Jesuits uh, who are up the street at Fairfield University, um, not too far from where you guys are. And I met the Jesuits and just loved it, you know, just kind of clicked, you know, make a long story very short, applied and got in and left GE and best decision I ever made.
0: Is that a common reason that people leave GE to go become a Jesuit <laughs> priest?
4: Yeah, yes, uh, I think fifty percent of the people who leave GE end up in religious orders. Wow,
1: that's
0: higher. I, I was going to
4: guess thirty-five. <laughs> that's right. That's yes, one would be su- one is generally surprised by that figure. Yeah. No, I mean uh, people at GE thought I was crazy, and I mean crazy, crazy. Not you know we're a little nuts. They actually thought I was insane. Wow. And I remember one of the great quotes was one of my best friends, this guy named Chris, and we're still good friends. He was a year or two older than I was. And I told him what I was doing. And he said, I think you need to see a therapist. And I said, I am seeing a therapist. And he said, I think you need to see another therapist. Yes. <laughs> wow. So no, people people thought I was nuts. My family thought I was nuts. And you know, I, I really didn't share anything about this process or this journey or discernment with them. And so... Right. You, you know, why wouldn't they think I was nuts? And uh, it took a couple of years before people really kind of got what I was doing. Right. And Jim, I mean, you've you you became
3: a priest. You you entered the Jesuit life. You, I mean, you've become a, a wonderful writer, um number of books, Jesus, a pilgrimage, the Jesuit guide to almost everything, which I started last week and very much enjoying seven last words, all sorts of wonderful books and articles and, and popular press as well. Can you tell us like what do you love about being a Jesuit? what What about it really
4: works for you? Oh that's a that's a great question. I love the spirituality, which can be encapsulated in the phrase "finding God in all things. That's so liberating. Mm. I love the prayer, I love uh, my relationship with God. Uh, you know, but at a more, I would say daily level, I would say, I love my Jesuit brothers. Uh, that's one thing they don't tell you when you enter the novitiate. I mean, I have many close friends who are Jesuits. And it is like having brothers, you know, where there's 17,000 Jesuits. and wow. But that's, that's beautiful. And I love the work. Mm. I mean, I, I love my job. I work at uh, America, which is a Catholic magazine. As you say, I, I write books. I, I do speaking gigs. Um, you know, I work with the media. I love it. I you mean, get to I, be on I podcasts really... about Harry Potter. I mean, that is uh, the I get life. To be on, yeah, <laughs> which is why I left GE. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, exactly. Doing this kind of stuff is fun, and that I love. So, but I would say spirituality the work, and and really my Jesuit brothers, who I, I really love a lot. T- tell us more about that idea of finding God in
3: everything, because I think that's something, the practice that we have of reading this book is really to try and find, you know, the deeper meaning, the the deeper connection um, within within this story. And, and I- I'm curious how that has played out for you in your own spirituality. Like,
4: where have you ended up finding that kind of piece of God in, in the everyday? Yeah, well, finding God in all things, and I can use the Harry Potter uh, books as an example. Finding God in all things means that you can experience God or one can experience God, not simply within the walls of a church or mm-hmm. reading the Bible or sitting down and praying. St. Ignatius's Ignatius' main insight, and he's not the first one to, to think it, but he was one to sort of popularize it, is that God is inviting us to encounter God's self, uh, himself, herself, at every moment of the day, through uh, relationships and work, through nature, music, Mm -hmm. reading. And so the whole world becomes this kind of sacrament, you know, through which you can experience God. And there are different ways of talking about that. Ignatius talks about being a contemplative in action, having a kind of contemplative stance in a very busy life. But, you know, let's take Harry Potter. I mean, I'm a big fan of the books. And, you know, Let's say that you're someone who reads the books and is a big fan and who sees in that story this great battle between light and dark and who right. takes inspiration in the character of Harry Potter and his friends and who who takes inspiration from the fact that he sort of um, puts up with struggles and really has to discern and mm-hmm. has to kind of uh, you know go on his own journey. You know, if you were to come to me as a spiritual director and say, you know, I really felt moved by that, I would say, hey – Maybe God is speaking to you through that that story, you know, mm-hmm. as God speaks to us through lots of stories and film and art and and music and all sorts of literature. So absolutely. So can you find God in the Harry Potter novels? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's where if if you're someone who is of that bent, you know, who is perhaps say introspective and likes books, that's where God's gonna meet you. You know, you might be someone who is an extrovert and God meets you more through relationships and and going out with friends and things like that the two aren't exclusive of course but uh, you know we can say that in all of those things god can be found and that's that's ignatius's great insight and that's what really helps to kind of break open the spiritual life for so many people i mean we we've, we've talked a little bit about ignatius on the
3: podcast you know mm-hmm. um the kind of this miraculous moment post war that ignatius had and the practice that he had of kind of imagining himself into the gospel stories especially can you tell us like what of the practices really been formational for you personally
4: Sure, uh, you know I didn't. I knew zero about Saint Ignatius before I contacted the Jesuits. I mean, literally zero. You know, Saint Ignatius Loyola. Oh, I <laughs> guess he was a saint, and I guess there's some colleges named after him. But uh, he was a, a Basque, um, and uh, we're talking about the 16th century. And I will tell his whole life story. But as you said, he he was a, he was a soldier and was injured in a battle in 1521, and ends up convalescing. And instead of tales of daring do and knightly heroism. The only thing that's available in the house, uh, his castle, his family castle, by the way. I think we all should have a family castle that we can recuperate in. (laughs) Agreed. Uh, Our lives of the saints and the life of Christ. And he starts to think, wow, you know, rather than the kind of, uh, you know, life of exploit and uh, kind of honor and glory that I was going to pursue, sort of following the saints and looking at their example and emulating them seems to fill me with greater happiness. And that's how he started to kind of discern, as we say. Mm. And, you know, the practice is um, besides sort of finding God in all things, there is that practice of what's called Ignatian contemplation, or as he calls it, composition of place, where you imagine yourself in a scripture scene. Mm. And, you know, really, Ignatian contemplation is kind of a sort of Lexio Divina on steroids. Um, You imagine yourself in the passage. So, for example, what do I see? Mm. Uh, What do I feel? What do I hear? What do I smell? What do I taste? It's literally using your senses. To imagine yourself. So, for example, let's take um, one of my favorite passages, the storm at sea. So uh, the, the disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep on the boat, and they say, don't you care about us? And he stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, mm-hmm. and it stops, and they're terrified. And they say, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? Anyway, so what would you do there? You would say, all right, you literally would read the passage, close your eyes, ask God to kind of be with you. And trust that God's going to be at work in this exercise. And you would compose the place, as Ignatius says. What does the boat look like? Mm. You know, how many disciples are in the boat? What's it look like outside? Is it dark? Is it stormy? Is it is it the daytime? Um, you know, what am I wearing? What does it feel like? Well, I'm going to be cold. You know, it's going to be cold and clammy. And uh, is the boat rocking? What does it sound like? Well, I mean, there's this fishing tackle kind of going from place to place of the disciples complaining, <laughs> uh, you know, lightning, thunder. What do I smell? Well, if you're in a fishing boat, you're going to smell fish, right? right. Um, so all that stuff to kind of really engage the imagination and all sorts of stuff can come up insights emotions memories desires feelings you well, know, and, one of the
3: questions that we've had because sometimes when you imagine yourself into a scene you get all sorts of stuff that isn't necessarily in the text but that does mm-hmm. come up in your imagination you know how how would ignatius
4: answer that kind of question is that is that faithful is that you know that's a great question that's a great and and the, the question is it really doesn't matter hmm. in a sense. So if you're in, I'm going to make something up. If you're in the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus is, you know, feeding the multitudes and suddenly a friend of yours appears, you know, right. you're not going to say, get, get, get out of my meditation, right. you know. <laughs> I'm what supposed are you to be encountering here? God here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wait, you weren't in Galilee then? <laughs> um, no, you know, it actually might be beautiful because. You know, you might say, "Oh my gosh!" You know, my friend feeds me in a certain way. Then hmm. all sorts of things can happen like that if you're open to them. You know, that doesn't mean that every single time you do it, it's going right. to be that rich. But <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times it is, and it's really unmistakable when it happens.
0: I mean, I loved so much of what you said. I love the idea of inviting the scene to sort of come mm-hmm. in. I find that very powerful and something that we come up against in doing this with Harry Potter is I'm always very wary of people sort of slipping into fan fiction imagining Mm
1: -hmm. where it's like,
0: oh, well, while I was in this scene, it occurred to me that maybe Harry and Draco had a conversation in the bathroom where they talk. (laughs) And I'm like, maybe, but this feels, you know, sort of beside the point. And I don't want to say that there's like good prayer and bad prayer or like good imagining and bad imagining, but there does seem to be one that's rigorous and self-conscious and asking itself, is this still prayerful or spiritual, or am I yeah. simply mm. sort of entertaining myself and making right. it right. right.
4: Well funny enough, I'm actually believe it or not, I'm writing a book on prayer and I'm I'm right at that chapter now, which oh, I'm wow. calling well, I'm, which I'm calling how do we know it's God, basically. Wow. And I would say I would say two things. One, I think that there are certain simple ways. And and the first way is to say, where does this lead me? You know, St. Paul says, you know, by your fruits you will know them. So, very simply, does it lead to an increase in charity, love, faith, yeah. hope, right? You know, so that's the first thing. You know, where where does this lead? Is it is it really inspiring me? So if I'm reading a passage and I'm imagining myself, you know, in, in the scene that you were talking about and I get the sense of being inspired and hopeful and kind of moved and you know, sort of a deeper understanding of myself and, and the world, I would say, yeah, that, mm. that sounds like God moving you, you know? Mm. But if you say, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I love that passage where Harry went out and killed Voldemort finally, so I'm going to go kill my enemies. <laughs> You'd say like, yeah, I'm not sure that that's coming from God. <laughs> but the other thing is this. The other thing is this. I mean, that's kind of an obvious one. The other thing would be this. Um, I think that God's voice in our lives is often very surprising, very simple, uh, very to the point, and it really does feel like it comes from outside of us. Mm. So, for example, let's say you're so let's say you're reading something about Harry Potter or and Hermione and that beautiful relationship they have, and you say, you know, I never really fully appreciated this particular relationship I had in my life. The person in my life that's most like Hermione is this, say, like this young woman I know, you know, who does X, Y, and Z, and I realize that she's kind of like my Hermione. Hmm. And that could be a really, and you're like, wow, where did that come from? Hmm. If it's surprising, if it's simple, if it's relatable, if it makes sense, I would say that's a good way to discern. Does hmm. that make sense?
0: Yeah, it's something. It reminds me of something one of our mentors, Matt Potts, said to us at the very beginning of this project, hmm. which is when doing a sacred reading practice, whether it be Lectio Divina or Ignatian spirituality, or even hmm. I would say and the Jewish practices hmm. that. Until you're reading God is Love, you haven't finished reading the passage that's
3: a
4: that's a great insight,
3: <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for your time. we We really appreciate you being with us.
0: yes, thank my you. pleasure,
3: <laughs> my pleasure all right. Goodbye. So now, let's put on newfound expertise to practice and find a passage
0: sacred imagination, me.
3: So the passage I want to read for you today is when the trio go down to Hagrid's hut. So if you're comfortable and not driving, feel free to close your eyes and and try to imagine yourself into this scene. I've not been myself lately, said Hagrid, stroking Fang with one hand and mopping his face with the other. Worried about Buckbeak and no one like in my classes. We do like them, lied Hermione at once. Yeah, they're great, said Ron, crossing his fingers under the table. Um... ''How are the flobberworms?'' ''Dead,'' said Hagrid gloomily. ''Too much lettuce.'' ''Oh no,'' said Ron, his lip twitching. ''And them dementors make me feel ruddy terrible and all,'' said Hagrid, with a sudden shudder. ''Got to walk past them every time I want a drink at the Three Broomsticks. It's like being back in Azkaban.'' He fell silent, gulping his tea. Harry, Ron and Hermione watched him breathlessly. They had never heard Hagrid talk about his brief spell in Azkaban before. After a brief pause, Hermione said timidly, Is it awful in there, Hagrid? You've no idea, said Hagrid quietly. Never been anywhere like it. So, Vanessa, what what did you see in that scene?
0: I was imagining myself as, like, one of the three kids. And first of all, just feeling so little in front of this very large man. And then... My life feeling so little in the face of everything that he has experienced. And just also feeling scared at the idea that there's someone who I love with such big problems that I can't fix. Watching an authority figure be scared is just, it's terrifying.
3: Yeah. What you just said is suddenly connecting in my brain to the fact that afterwards they become really intent on trying to find, you know, legal cases that will help Buckbeak because it feels like this is something they can't deal with. But the Buckbeak case, maybe they can. And so it's, you know, they're desperately looking for a way to help him after kind of the intensity of this scene. Yeah. I was kind of thinking of myself as Ron a little bit. You know, he's... Kind of playing earlier up the page, he's saying, like, oh, we do like your classes. And he's kind of crossing his fingers, you know, which is a really childish thing to do. And his lip is twitching when he hears that the flobber worms are dead, right? He's kind of smiling. And then when Hagrid starts talking about Azkaban, the room falls silent and all of that childishness disappears. And I think it's interesting that Hermione is the one who asks the question, who we already know is maturing much more than the boys. And she doesn't offer a Pronouncement. She doesn't offer a placation or anything. She invites a question, which I think is so beautiful, and she just asks him, is it awful in there, Hagrid? Like, they know it's bad. And she, I think she wants to validate his experience and make him, give him some space to talk more about it. This is the first time he's bringing it up. It happened a while ago. And I think sometimes you have those moments in conversations where suddenly there's space to talk about this thing that's been so shaming or or frightening or upsetting and she's making it safe to do that
0: yeah and because she waited for him to bring it up it doesn't feel like prying curiosity but just like do you want to talk about it and she she even has the elegance not to ask about like what was it like for you in there she gives him space to Mm -hmm. either sort of be a reporter type of like yeah people really struggle in there or to talk about his own experience. I think it's an incredibly artful question. The other thing that I'm thinking in this scene is just how awful I feel for Buckbeak. Like, this is a really big animal who, at the beginning of the book, there were several hippogriffs around. And so he, like, had friends or family or whatever around. And now Buckbeak is the only one left. He's been tied up for a long time outside and now is inside. And I would just Like, he's a prisoner. He's locked up. And I would imagine that for Harry, Ron, and Hermione, you can smell him. You know, like, a big animal like that is going to create, like, a stench in the house. And that Hagrid is just willing to put up with that in order to be empathetic. And just, I feel like the innocence of an animal suffering is just so sad and pathetic. And I just, I feel like it's probably so quiet And like stinky in there and probably overly hot because it's cold outside and it just must feel so claustrophobic and so awful and sad.
3: You know what it's making me think that, of course, the title of the book is about Sirius, but actually we have a second prisoner of Azkaban, which is Hagrid. Yeah. Like he is not left and some part of him is not left that confinement.
0: I just hate those moments when you're seeing someone suffer and you just feel like you there's nothing you can do. And the trio, by being there and just sort of existing in that space, are, like, doing everything that they can. And I love that Hagrid even thinks that they've somehow magically, instantaneously found out. Um, but I just... It's just so heartbreaking to sit there and watch someone you love suffer and know that there's little to nothing you can do to alleviate their suffering and that every protest that they put, they're right. It's like, yep, this system is just corrupt. Yep, he is just going to suffer. Yep.
3: Yeah. The thing I'm taking away is just this deep sadness. You know, he's, he's remembering horrible experiences he feels rotten right now he feels like he's bad at everything and now he's dreading this event that's coming which is buckbeak's you know probable execution he's really stuck
0: he is very lucky to have these three kids though and i do think that that's something and is a real solace to him absolutely and fang Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.
3: This voicemail is from Sophia Sharon.
1: Hi, this is Sophia. I'm currently living in Los Angeles, California, and I love the show. I'm calling about the episode with the Marauders map and how uh, you discussed how Fred and George gave the map to Harry, but um, not what I feel like is really something crucial about this giving. The fact that they didn't give it to Ron, who's their family member, and Ron never really has a lot of... Things that he gets, especially from his family. And Harry, on the other hand, has the invisibility cloak. Even Hermione has the time turner. And it's not as if Fred and George give it to Ron and say, oh, loan this to Harry, or give it to Harry and say, oh, then give it to Ron in a few days or something like that. And that just feels really sad that they don't acknowledge their brother and sort of seem to prefer Harry in some ways to him.
0: Sophia, thank you so much for your voicemail. Just, I'm really confused by, who's Ron? <laughs> oh, so brutal. Who's this Ron character?
3: I, I had never thought about this, Sophia. I, I'm just totally stunned by my own inability to see this. This is right in front of us. And you're so right. Like, poor Ron.
0: No, Ron is definitely, like, even though he's the youngest boy, he's, like, a middle child in a big family and, like, rah.
3: All the more credit to Ron for his amazing commitment and courage throughout these books. Yeah.
0: He can be a real jerk sometimes, but I love him. Casper, we now get to bless someone from the pages of the book. Who would you like to bless this week?
3: My blessing this week is for Dumbledore. At the meal where we see that Trelawney and McGonagall kind of going at each other, before everyone sits down Everyone's sitting at their own house tables, you know, these five, six students plus then the the teachers at their table. And Dumbledore says, as there are so few of us, it doesn't make sense to sit in house tables. I love that. And he's not inviting people to move b- just for an arbitrary reason, but because he's got Christmas crackers and the Christmas crackers are amazing. And in his Christmas cracker, there's this amazing witch's hat with a vulture on it, just like Snape wears when he's the Boggart. And he puts it on, I just, I don't know, this is one of those moments where I feel like the queer Dumbledore emerges and he's like, I'm just going to dress up on Christmas Day because I'm having a good time and I want everyone to be together despite all our differences. And I, anyone who brings people together into community and helps people have fun with silliness, this blessing is for you. How about you, Vanessa?
0: I would like to bless Hermione. She's heroic in this chapter. She stays back with a complete clarity of purpose from Christmas dinner and ruins her own Christmas by tattling on the boys. And I just think it must be so hard for her. And she knows that she is about to feel so lonely. And she just has the courage of her conviction and does what she knows to be right. I think it is brave and kind, and I want to be her.
3: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: Our live show tour starts in two days, so please join us in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, in all of them, not just one of them.
3: And then on the East Coast in New York City, Philadelphia and D.C., you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. Next week, we'll read Chapter 12, The Patronus, through the theme of optimism.
0: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we would like to thank Sophia Sharon for sending in a voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone.
3: I try to say goodbye, and I choke.
0: <laughs> and I choke?
3: That's what she sings.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's we way in, I stumble, a stumble,
3: but I try to hide it.
0: It's, it's clear. clear,
3: I the walk on down. frogs when you are not there. That's what it sounds like.
0: <laughs> no, my world crumbles. I know, but
3: it sounds like I walk on frogs. <laughs> no, it
0: doesn't. <laughs>